You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome to Heritage Voices, Episode 7. My name is Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host today. And today we are going to be talking about California state and local tribal consultation law. So today I have Michelle Lapina with me. And Michelle Lapina is a member of the Pitt River Tribe and a mother of three. She received her BA in 1993 and her JD in 1998, both from the University of California, Davis. She recently graduated from the Institute of American Indian Arts with a Master of Fine Arts degree in Creative Writing and is a recipient of the 2015 Truman Capote Creative Writing Fellowship and an American Indian College Fund Full Circle Award. She is an Indian law attorney and has owned and operated Lapina Law Corporation, a federal Indian law practice since 2006. She represents Indian tribes on a variety of legal matters, including tribal gaming regulation, cultural resource protection, Indian child welfare, taxation, administrative law, and general civil litigation involving tribal governments. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jessica. Yes. So welcome to the show. And I just want to start out, I mean, did you always want to be a lawyer or was that something that kind of came a little bit later? You know, I don't feel like I ever had a choice just because of my family dynamic, being involved in Indian law issues and tribal issues in California. It just... But I think there was always an expectation that I would be an attorney because there was a lot of need and, and for lawyers. And and actually, that's why I just got my MFA now that I've been practicing for almost 20 years now. I really wanted to go back to writing, which is something that it was kind of one of those dream deferred ideas that I had. And I actually talked with Joy Harjo when I was at I. I last year about that, about how some some natives, we go to school and there's all these expectations that we do these things, you know, that that will help the community. Mm -hmm. And we kind of have to put our dreams aside, but it's never too late to try new things. But in the, you know, being a lawyer and being a tribal attorney has been an amazing experience. And 
the only I think the only downside that I can say in hindsight is that I just wish there were more of us. You know, I wish there were more Indian uh, tribal attorneys and, that are native. I know there are a lot. I just don't see them very often, and that is always kind of disappointing. Mm-hmm. But there's a few of us. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a good number, like you were mentioning before we actually started recording, there's a good number who work for tribes specifically. Compared to- right. A lot of them are in-house counsel and they represent their own tribes. And, and so I just don't see them very often because they're, they're working within their tribal government. Mm-hmm. So what made you want to go into, I mean, you kind of already touched upon this, but this, the specific types of law that you ended up going into? Yeah, well, I originally started at with various law firms. I worked for some, a boutique Indian law firm that was nationwide, and I worked for a big internationally known law firm, Holland and Knight. I worked there for several years as senior counsel. And one of the things that I found in working at Holland and Knight was that tribes, many tribes, particularly California tribes, because they're small and don't have a lot of resources, there's a huge disparity. There's either gaming tribes with tremendous wealth, and those tribes can hire Holland and Knight, and and that was where I began working on cultural resource protection for some of the more successful gaming tribes that had that those kinds of resources. And that was really exciting. It was great to be able to get in involved with writing legislation in particular and having a client that was able to pay for that. Mm-hmm. But then I, you know, I really felt that there were so many tribes that couldn't afford that kind of effort and it's hard to lower your rates when you're in a big law firm. Right. But I could do that if I went out on my own. So I started my own practice so that I could represent more tribes, smaller tribes, unrecognized tribes, tribes that, ne- that can't necessarily pay a big legal bill. And I just have to balance my work so that, you know, my bills are paid and mm-hmm. um, and then I get to do the work that I really enjoy. So luckily, um, you know, that is that was a good decision. I was able to I have a lot more freedom on my own where I can uh, get involved with issues that I think are important. But it really does go back to my starting at Holland and Night, where I was representing a, a tribe that was very active in in, in pushing for uh, changes to California's cultural preservation laws. Mm-hmm. And that really was a tremendous opportunity for me because we ended up getting legislation passed back in 2004, which we call SB 18. And SB 18 is where we established legal procedure and legal definition for consultation in California with regard to cultural sites. And as that time passed, and we had a new governor, we have uh, Jerry Brown, he implemented a consultation policy across the board with all state agencies. And so it's really rewarding to see that that effort in 2004 to get state law, a state law definition of consultation as law, that that has, uh, you know, grown. Mm -hmm. So, okay, before we get more into some of the specifics there, we had talked a little bit before about why state and local consultation laws are important. Can you 
talk a little bit about why why you think that the, those are so necessary? Yeah. Well, I, when I first was studying federal Indian law as a law student, it was always the idea was always, well, this is a tribal federal relationship. This mm-hmm. is the trust relationship between these federally recognized Indian tribes and the United States. And there's this trust doctrine, and that's really the bedrock of federal Indian law. And I think for a long time, actually really until gaming, I think gaming was where where the tribes sort of started shifting their attention to working with the state governments. And when gaming happened, when we started having to negotiate compacts with the state for gaming, you know, we began to see that there was this local relationship that was really important and that was kind of being overlooked. And I I know some tribes didn't like that initially because it the sovereignty is it comes from the federal relationship, and so it was viewed at the time as lowering yourself to go in and talk to the state mm-hmm. because tribes are sovereign. Right. And so the gaming issue and negotiating compacts, which in California, that was in 1999 when most of the, the tribal state gaming compacts were negotiated. And so that really laid the foundation, I think, for tribes to be more actively involved with the state but it really makes sense that in California in particular, because there's so much urban sprawl into our cultural areas and, you know, there's cities now built on in our traditional village areas. It made sense that we look at creating some kinds of avenues to be able to stop projects mm-hmm. or even or or have a place at the table with these local projects that are going to, you know, damage or destroy cultural sites forever. Right. And the only way to do that was through state law. Right. Before we go too far with that, just to make sure that everyone understands the concept of a compact. So basically, from my understanding, and obviously I'm sure you know way better than I do, (laughs) but the concept of a compact is that Basically, because tribes sometimes use state resources like highways and ambulances, et cetera, that Mm -hmm. basically if the tribe has a casino and is making money, that some of that money should go back to the state in exchange for those resources. Is that more or less? Yeah, well, that's what it turns That's what it turned into, but Mm -hmm. it started, and sort of the nutshell is in 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 California was where you know the Supreme Court decision in Cabazon was uh, generated, and that was in the in this. Actually, there's been gaming in California, tribal gaming since the late 70s, -hmm. and it was just unregulated gaming, and and then there was a a raid at the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians bingo parlor and they had a card room and that raid by the city of Indio the and the legality of whether the tribe could game under state law and under federal law worked its way up to the United States Supreme Court and then I believe it was 87 
or 88, I think it was 1987, that the Cabazon decision was rendered. And that in that decision, it said that in California, gaming was a, it fell under the civil regulatory laws of the state of California. It wasn't criminal prohibitory. And so because it was civil regulatory, they said, in the Supreme Court decision that the tribe, that the state could not regulate it, that the tribe had sovereignty mm-hmm. over these civil regulatory activities. And so that the local and the state government could, could not regulate it. Right. And so the effect of that was that the Congress passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And in IGRA, it requires tribes to enter into these compacts with states to govern the regulation of of gaming on Indian land. And, you know, originally it was, I think the idea was that it was going to be about, you know, the machines and organized crime and money. But what it turned into, you know, by the by the 90s and in 1999, when we were negotiating here in California, it was about these off-reservation impacts mm-hmm. um, from gaming on, on Indian lands, as you mentioned, this, the effect of of the, the development of these large-scale operations and how that affects the local government and the communities in the surrounding areas, which is, you know, one of the things that really bothered me at the time and still does You know, I find it very insulting that local governments want to tell tribes we want to be able to limit the effect that the tribal activities have on the local government. I know, right? When the local (laughs) government is approving projects that destroy our Aboriginal area. Right. And so actually that was a a reason why how that was one of the arguments that I made at the time back in 2004, why tribes should have a seat at the table with these off-reservation planning development projects right. um, because it's our Aboriginal area. We have the knowledge. We know where these places are a lot of the time. And, you know, up to that point, tribal people, particularly the elders in California, the they didn't want to tell anybody where things were because they would be looted or destroyed. Right. And so confidentiality was really the number one issue was to keep everything confidential. And that was really in conflict with the idea of of having to tell people, wait, you know, we don't want you to build that housing project there because that's our our creation place, right. you know. And and, right. and it seems so in conflict with the idea of like these sacred places to be sitting down with a developer and saying, look, this is where our people came from the earth or this spring is where we sprung from the earth through the water. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it's really uh, difficult to bridge that gap. And so the legislation in 2004 really set the table for tribes to be able to do that. And so I, I don't know if it would have happened if it wasn't for all that gaming compact discussions. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. But we did have other legislation before that to try to attempt to have like a California NAGPRA law. And we have a statutory process where there was a, a Native American Heritage Commission created back in the 80s. And that the NAHC, they, kept, they keep a 
a registry of sacred sites in California. But again, because tribal people didn't want to say and disclose and that we wanted confidentiality, that sacred lands file is really thin. Mm-hmm. People don't want to tell the NAC where, where the locations are. But archaeologists were submitting their documentation when they did a field report, establish a site boundary. Those records would go into the state historic resource inventory system, and some of those files would find their way into the Native American Heritage Commission file, sacred lands files. Mm-hmm. And that was really the only way a developer would be able to have an idea that there might be something on the site when they did a, a, a record search. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's not very effective. <laughs> right. Because you would only have sites in the record if they've already been basically studied. Right. And so much of California hasn't been studied or, you know, it's it's untouched soil. So you wouldn't necessarily have a record. And so there did need to be an, some way for tribal people to say, hold on a second, this project is going to affect, there's a burial ground there, mm-hmm. uh, there's a village site there. And for the tribal representatives to be able to, to, to interject and require that there be consultation. And, you know, I think about that as with like the Dakota Access Pipeline, what would have happened if there was a law like that, you know, there in these other states, because mm-hmm. the tribes would have had a seat at the table when the local governments were approving whatever whatever portions of the pipeline they had to approve. And I'm assuming that there was some local approvals. Mm-hmm. Instead of just, yeah, instead of just the Army Corps, basically. Right. It would mm-hmm. have given it would have given another opportunity for the tribal representatives to raise the issue. Right. Right. And, you know, one of the, one of the main concerns that we had in drafting SB 18 was that we wanted to get tribal representatives to the table at the earliest possible time, because once, and we saw this with Dapple that Mm -hmm. the more money that is invested, the less likely they are to stop it. Right. Or because just. they've already invested, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. a done deal by the time they get to the consultation. So they're just talking to you and it's just FaceTime right. to, right. you know, sort of check the box. Yep. Check. Yep. We met with the tribe. We met with these representatives and that's all that they would need to do. Right. You know, we wanted to get the people at the, at the table as early as possible. And so we inserted the, consultation requirement in the general the general planning process mm-hmm. and so general planning is the earliest stage of planning here in California it's where areas are identified as open space or commercial or you know how they're zoned at the local and county level mm-hmm. and so the local planners are required to send all of those documents to tribes which frankly is very onerous because they get everything right oh yeah (laughs) they get everything now um and so they have to be you know that's the downside right is that in in in-house every tribe now gets a ton of notices right and they have to be able to sort through those documents and decide which projects they want 
to request consultation and which are not, you know, which ones are not a concern. Right. And that process is, I'm sure it's very difficult for some tribes to manage. Yes. You know, that's a downside of, of you know, giving tribes everything. Right, right. If they're buried with everything. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, well, you know, we... They do have to set up a system of some kind. Mm-hmm. We are at our first stopping point. Um, okay. So let's take a moment, and then I really want to dive further into to all of this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. All right. So we are back. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about this law that you... Help develop what it was SB 18, you said? Right. Yeah, SB, we call it SB 18. It's actually the California Government Code 65352.4 is the definition, is where we establish the definition of consultation. And that whole section generally it lays out the process for consultation with California Native American tribes. And, and that definition of consultation is important Mm -hmm. and also the fact that it was California Native American tribes, which is broader than federally recognized tribes. Right. Because in California, you you have more than that. That was one thing I did definitely want to touch on. I thought that was really interesting, the way that you guys have the definition for for tribes. Do you want me to, I have it right in front of me, if if you'd rather talk about it or rather have me read it off. Go ahead and read it. One sec. I had it right in front of me. Yeah. Well, I can tell, read the definition. So the definition of consultation. Okay. It means, and this is this. It it, it took a long time to come up with this this definition because we wanted it to be meaningful. So consultation means the meaningful and timely process of seeking, discussing, and considering carefully the views of others in a manner that is cognizant of all parties' cultural values and where feasible seeking agreement. And it goes on that consultation between government agencies and tribes shall be conducted in a way that is mutually respectful of each party's sovereignty. And consultation shall also recognize the tribe's potential need needs for confidentiality with respect to places that have traditional tribal cultural significance. And, you know, I really like this definition. We took a long time to develop this because the whole idea was it's not just checking the box. Right. And we needed to have enough meat in the definition 
to be able to say it needs to be meaningful. It needs to be timely because Mm -hmm. if it's not timely, then it's not useful. You know, if it's at the end and all of the permits are issued and you're just checking the box, that's not consultation. Consultation has to be earlier. Right. And it really does require this sort of meeting of the minds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really depends upon the people in the consultation and and how well this, you know, the definition is met. But I've been in several consultations where it really does feel like it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And when it's meaningful, that's where you can come up with an, an agreement. I think if people are not honest and they can't trust each other in a consultation, it's not going to end well. And I know it's hard for parties, for especially tribal people that have been in California. We've been, we've had genocide and missions and colonization and really terrible treatment in our curriculum. And there's so many issues and lack of land base and lack of funding and so much discrimination, it's hard to trust these mostly white developers that come in and and just want to make money. Right. I think the idea is we have to respect that they're, they're, that's what they're trying to do. They're Mm -hmm. trying to make money and we are kind of in the way and how can we accomplish both goals? Mm -hmm. Are there places where they can develop what they want to develop and can we protect our sites? Right. Right. I I think that we can do both. Right. I I mean, I I think that's a really important thing for for people on the other side of consultation to keep in mind that, you know, it's really easy to to be like, oh, well, I'll protect your stuff. You can trust me. But there's this whole history where tribes have seen that that's not true. You know, that the people have said that to them over and over and over and over again. And that there's a lot more to it than that. And so that's why I really liked that you had confidentiality in the consultation definition, not just confidentiality, but confidentiality and sovereignty, because both of those aspects, I think, are two really important concepts that a lot of times people who haven't worked with tribes before haven't done tribal consultation really miss and they don't understand why that's different than consulting with other stakeholder groups. So I'm really, I think it's really important that you guys included those two aspects in your definition itself. Yeah. And those are probably the hardest parts of it for in the consultation process, because you know, there's a resistance to the idea of tribal sovereignty um, Mm -hmm. and tribes having, you know, you see in the comments on articles where a tribe is objecting to a project or, you know, some construction site and there's tribal opposition to this project. And if there's an article on the internet and you look at the comments, you know, Mm -hmm. some of them are going to be that we should protect these sites, and then a good number of them are going to be why do the why do these Indians have more rights and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, special they, privileges? Yeah, and mm-hmm. and so this idea that tribes have more say, you know, it's out there, and 
we have to accept that there's going to be that kind of ignorance until we've educated everybody. And right. yeah, that a lot of people don't agree that it should be our job to educate everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't necessarily need to do that our each of us individually, but we can do that at the table in consultation. We can explain to them our history so that they can respect it. And usually consultations that I've been involved in, we spend, I, I like to take the first part of the consultation for the tribal elder, the tribal leader, mm-hmm. the cultural mm-hmm. representative, whoever they are, to talk about their history. And right. that might take the most time out of the whole consultation is that time for them to express their history, their issues, their their pain, their right. concerns. And, you know, and and my job as the attorney is to sort of set the table for that so that the developer's representatives know this is, we, we've got to do this. Mm-hmm. This has to happen mm-hmm. first before right. we talk. And then we can give them an opportunity to say what, you know, their story. And mm-hmm. I've been to a consultation recently where the developer, after listening to the tribal person, we sort of went through their own education process and how they did respect the tribe and they did respect the history and they understood how important this area was. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had different views on where certain things were actually located because they don't want to have it actually located where they want to build. They want mm-hmm. to have it all actually located to everywhere else except for where they want to build. <laughs> but they were also honest that, look, we're trying to develop low-income housing or housing in an area where housing's really needed. Right. And they also have a lot of money invested, and these are the pressures that are on them. And I think it is important for both sides to be able to express what their what their what the pressures are on them, what their concerns are, mm-hmm. and what their motivations are. And if everybody gets that out on the table, I think the discussion is going to be more fruitful. Right. Right. Um, so it's better to do that than to be walking away and not and just sort of looking down on the other side. You know, both sides are, have just as much obligation or responsibility to mm-hmm. stay at the table. Right. You know, and I do think a lot of the times tribal people get frustrated and, and they walk away too soon. Because we have that fighting instinct, because we've been fighting for so long yeah. that we want to fight and go to court. And we haven't, we're not always successful when we go to court, but I do feel like there, there's a lot of opportunity for some win-wins along the way mm-hmm. if you are, are open-minded in a consultation. Right. Um, so now we have the opportunity, at least, and we never really had it before. And SB 18 just sort of, it established the process and then we knew, and when I say we, I mean myself and the other, there were other Indian law attorneys and other cultural resource law attorneys, tribal leaders, lobbyists that were involved at SB 18. And and frankly, we had a really favorable governor and his legal advisor, his name was Barry Good. Barry... um, (laughs) Very yeah, good. Funny. Yeah, he was very good. He um he was so great and we became very good friends in the process of drafting that legislation because he he 
he cared. And I think he cared because he spent a lot of time listening to all of us talk about how important it was. And so mm-hmm. he kind of was a convert. You know, he, he, he understood it after a while and he was willing to stand with us with all of the opposition groups because it was opposed by everybody. You know, you had the builders and the energy and liquid natural gas. Everybody wanted an exemption from it. And there there aren't any exemptions from it, but it was just in the general planning process. And so it was limited in, in its scope. We really wanted to have a, a veto in our environmental planning law. So basically, if you picture NEPA, Mm-hmm. So and for if we if tribes had a veto mm-hmm. of a project under NEPA, that's what we were asking for. That's what we wanted mm-hmm. in state law in the CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, and and we and we got it. Actually, we got it through the legislature, um, but the governor vetoed it, and then it, that's how we ended up with SB 18. But we wanted to be able to stop projects altogether if there was a cultural site there, which if we had something more meaningful in NEPA, we could have a greater say in these federal projects with the Army Corps, which that whole regulatory framework is just terrible, Mm -hmm. you know, for tribes. We have very little ability to stop anything on the federal level. And I feel that we need to do something about that, um, but it's very hard to do, and it's impossible to do in this administration, obviously. When the election happened, all of my plans for making changes to the legislation and the regulations for historic preservation, that all went out the window. Hmm. But I definitely okay. had some thoughts on it, and was you know, and I know that NCAI and NARF, you know, we were all ready to push an agenda because of Dakota Access, right? But that just all fell apart um, in November. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, real quick, let's uh, do some acronyms for people. So, okay. NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act. So, just in case there's anyone not from the U.S. Yeah. listening. And basically, that's our federal law that says that federal agencies have to consider their impact on the environment when they take basically any action. Yeah, when there's a federal action. mm -hmm, Exactly. And then you also mentioned the Native American Rights Fund, right? Right. And you said one other one. National Congress of American Indians. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so after we passed SB 18, we also saw there were some other, you know, holes in laws mm-hmm. in California. Mm-hmm. And one was where you had, so in California originally under the under the, NA, the Native American Heritage Commission statute, if there was construction, say, of a shopping center and a, bar- a human bone was discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was determined that that was a Native American human bone that would have been treated a certain way where the tribe that was culturally affiliated with that location would be able to come in and have a monitor there, a tribal monitor, and they could they would be able to stop that project until there could be a, an assessment of what was there. Um, and there was there was a discussion that was provided for in the original statute, but 
one of the problems that we saw, we be, again being just sort of this group of folks that we've kind of all worked together to to keep this ball moving and 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 keep changing the laws laws to make it better. Sometimes you would find one burial or a partial burial, and you get that consultation, and then the developer says, "Well, we'll just rebury it over on this other side of the." parcel and we'll leave it alone and then they dig then they start up again and they find another one right 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 and so what we wanted was the ability to completely stop the project once there were multiples found once there were multiple burials found Mm -hmm. and basically have it considered a burial ground Hmm. and and then that triggers consultation and so we did get that into the public resources code here where multiple burials is a is a burial we call it the burial ground bill and that requires the stop of construction and and tribal consultation on site there and it is a more detail it actually incorporates that definition of consultation in Mm -hmm. at that stage where before it was just the monitor comes out and they express their frustration where the developer didn't have to really do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So after this new bill, which was AB 2641, the consultation was required when there was multiple burials, which ideally once you find a couple of burials, I mean, here culturally, that's a major sign that there's mm-hmm. going to be more because right, right. that's just traditionally everyone would be, people would be buried in the same location. You don't just have a lot of just random burials in California tradition. You have mounds and you have areas where they're all sort of layered with each other. And I don't want to get too detailed about it, but they all, they that's our, culturally how we buried here. Mm-hmm. In most areas of California, if they were buried, you know, some places like in Southern California, there would be cremations and other kinds of funerary customs. But even the cremations could all be buried in a similar spot. So having the ability to consult when you have multiple burials is, is really important. And then we also found that there was not tight enough confidential confidentiality rules in the Public Records Act and the state law. So we kind of closed that loop saying that any documents or documentation that comes out of the tribal consultation is confidential. Mm-hmm. So that it couldn't be included in, you know, an addendum that's right. public. Right, right. So, yeah, Good. that's really important. Yeah. Okay. So we are at the point for our second break. So we'll just do that real quick, and then we'll jump again right back in. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Okay, so we're back. And before we, we get back into it, let's read off that, that list of criteria to meet the definition of, of tribal governments for this these California laws. So basically what I have in front of me is that these laws include A, all federally recognized tribes. So that's pretty simple, but then it gets a little bit more tricky and I liked the way that you guys broke this down. So basically, it also includes non-federally recognized tribes that meet minimum criteria. But you also emphasize that this is not a complete list of criteria, which I think is important. So other groups could come forward and could be included as well. That's my understanding, right? Right. And that's probably one of the most controversial pieces and one of the most complicated parts of all of this system because we have so many unrecognized tribal groups in California. Mm-hmm. I want to say there's over 60, wow. uh, maybe 80. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, traditionally a lot of smaller bands and villages that were, you know, loosely organized into these larger tribal groups or language families. And mm-hmm. California is one of the most diverse for languages, one of the most diverse places in the world. Um, It's right up there with Australia in terms of language diversity. Hmm. And, you know, that's one of the unique aspects, one of the many unique aspects of California. When I was an undergrad, we, part of my degree was in linguistics. And, you know, that's one of the signifiers usually for a great age in a, of living in a place. Mm -hmm. Um, so I find that really interesting because, you know, there's this idea that California or native people, we haven't been here that long. And this whole Bering Strait idea, right. and I just 100% disagree and dismiss all of that theory because we have sites here that are 30,000 years old. And I know it goes back farther than that because the language diversity is too great for it to be a shallow timeline in California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just that the habitat and the environment doesn't really lend itself to, in all the places in California, to, you know, locating intact remains that are of great age. You know, it's not like Africa right. where you have an environment where you can find things. But, you know, there are, I'm sure there will be finds in the future but part of me doesn't want to find them because we want to leave them alone. Right, right. Well, uh, and... language diversity, you know, is a signifier, sorry, about the, um, the number of tribes. And we only have 100, well, I guess there's around 110 federally recognized tribes in California. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm never quite sure of the number because some tribes count as Arizona, but they have land here. So it's there's different... Right. 
that's why there's different numbers. Sometimes people count the tribes that are straddling the border of Arizona, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some lists don't include them. Right. Right. Um, but we have a lot of tribes, and this whole process gives them the opportunity for California Native American tribes to to step in and request consultation. And that is a process that's still being worked out with the Native American Heritage Commission. They had to kind of go back, and originally they had lists of most likely descendants, these mm-hmm. MLD lists, and those were people that could show that they were tribal from a particular area, and if there was a find, an inadvertent discovery, they could be contacted, these MLDs. And then some of those MLDs have formed organizations, some are tribes, some are archaeological resources, consultant and but the NACs had to try to come up with some criteria so they can figure out which groups identify as and work as tribes and which mm-hmm. ones are just individuals that are you know they're accountable to one of the tribal groups. So that's complicated. Right. And that's the part <laughs> that the state didn't really want to deal with. Right. Um but they it's in there. Right. <laughs> okay. And so this is how it's in there. So it says yeah. non-federally recognized tribes that meet minimum criteria, not a complete list of criteria. So they function as a government body. They've completed petition for recognition by the federal government. They have documentation that they were formerly recognized. So that's like in the cases of termination, I'm guessing. And they have tribes that are recognized as a Native American tribe by the surrounding community, including other tribes and local governments. Tribes who are members of continuously operating historical tribes that were signatories to an unratified treaty or a nonprofit organization dedicated to general governance and tribal community well-being and for which the majority of the nonprofit's membership is not represented by any other tribal group. So that's a pretty comprehensive list when you're covering a lot of of issues where other people in other states might get left out. Yeah, it is. And it, it does put a burden on the unrecognized tribes mm-hmm. to have an entity. That's one of the downsides to the list. Mm-hmm. Because it does require paper. And right. Right. some of the tribes are historic tribes that probably don't want to be a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and some of them don't want to petition for federal recognition. So it makes qualifying to be on the list more difficult for them. So right. that's one of the downsides. The upside is if they do, if they go through the hoops and they can show that they're, and they're descendants of people that were on mission lists, genealogies and that they have operated as a as a group so you have to get into the paper trail mm-hmm. which when we were passing or working on this legislation this was one of the big objections that especially along the coast in California the local governments complained a lot about the unrecognized groups and how difficult it was to know who was who mm-hmm. and we just had to kind of go in and do some more training of those lo- local governments mm-hmm. and explain to them why, because they don't know why. 
They don't know why there's so many small groups. And they also didn't understand the history of the missions and how the missions along the coast affected the tribal people and the tribal groups and, and caused so much lack of cohesion within the different tribal areas. Right. And there's a there's a story there for each of those groups. You know, the mission history here was really awful. And so most of the unrecognized tribes along the coast, they can trace their ancestry to particular missions and some of them have relationships still with those mission groups and nonprofits and, mm-hmm. and so it's just a matter of establishing that. I know that I personally, after SB18, I worked with the governor's office to go out and train all of the counties in California, and there's like 57 counties. And then we wow. also did some cities, too, and the the sort of return visits that we felt we had to make at that time were on the coast because mm-hmm. they had so many questions about the unrecognized groups and the unaffiliated. So right. it's difficult, and I... You know, we do have more resources now with the Native American Heritage Commission. That was one of the, that was always a problem with mm-hmm. the state Native American Heritage Commission was funding and staff. And they have more now, but they need more too. They still need more help because everything's very slow. Right, right. It's time consuming. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's good that you guys have that resource now. Yeah. Um, and okay, gosh, so many different places to go. Okay, one thing that you had said in the previous part that I definitely want to make sure that we touch on was you were talking about if the administration had been different, that there were changes you would have liked to have seen to uh-huh. cultural resource law, the federal cultural resource laws. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of changes you would like to see to those laws? Yeah, it's really unfortunate that the Dakota Access Pipeline has gone in, been installed, mm-hmm. it's operational uh, over the objections of the tribes. And, you know, despite litigation, it really shows how the system under NEPA does not work for right. cultural resource protection for the, even if they have a treaty. Which, you know, California, we don't have treaties here because they were not ratified. There were a lot of treaties negotiated here, but the member of Congress from California, they basically took it back to Washington, D.C. They took all the treaties and they hid them in a file cabinet, literally hid them in a file cabinet, and somebody found them later. So they were never ratified because the state folk, they wanted to take all the land. They did not want to have treaties with the tribes in California. So they they hid them. So we don't have ratified treaties. And I've only really worked in California. So with the Dakota Access Pipeline issue, mm-hmm. I got involved in the attorney work groups that were out there to try to bring amicus briefs in, which are friend of the court briefs. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful I had the opportunity to work on that with Native American Rights Fund and NCAI. And they pulled together these attorney work groups to file amicus briefs on these issues that are in the Supreme Court. But this was at a lower court, but it was something that affected, you know, it was obviously a concern for all the tribes in the country. Right. And so seeing that the project could be shoved through, despite the fact that the tribes objected, they had treaties, this is treaty areas, this is unceded land. And NEPA was never complied with is just shocking. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable to me that it happened that way. And 
one of the, I think, my biggest frustrations with all of that is it was, it was as if once the election happened, all, you know, all of the rules, all of the rules of law, of NEPA, of courts, of call the law, treaties, everything went out the window when right. uh, Trump was elected. And I do feel that that needs to be opposed. And I hate that kind of am tired of the word resist, but it needs <laughs> to be opposed and we need to be doing something to, re- to more proactively not just resisting, but proactively doing something. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very hard to do that when there's no way to do that <laughs> because right. you have an administration that's completely hostile to it. But mm-hmm. I do think that we should make the most of our time that we have in the interim because there's not a lot going on proactively. We could take this time to develop a strategy for if there is an opportunity in a new administration to put some mm-hmm. things in place. And I, I'm guilty as anybody, like I, you get dismayed and frustrated and kind of set it off to the side. But I think that since Trump and this administration, they've been repealing the regulations and the legislation of the late, the later part of the Obama administration, and that's as far back as they can go in Mm -hmm. the last six months of the Obama administration. And I think there's some rules, you know, I'm not a federal lobbyist, but I thought I would have to tap into some of my friends that are, and I know Mm -hmm. there's lots of really good Indian lobbyists and tribal lobbyists out there, but there's some rules about now that we can't bring the same regulations back that were repealed. And so maybe that's a good thing Mm -hmm. where later on we could bring new regulations that are better because the old ones that were repealed, they weren't really good anyway. Hmm. So you know, there's, I always, I'm kind of an optimist <laughs> and I would think that we should be getting it together and we can develop some new re- regulations for the NHPA, the National Historic Preservation Act, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, the ACHP. We can work on some of the Army Corps regulations for Section 106. There's lots of pieces to this and the Trump administration wants to reduce regulations and make it simpler, which, it, you know, maybe we might look back 10 years from now and say, well, that made our process easier to bring in a simpler process later because the old regulations didn't work and everything was kind of smoke and mirrors. And it, and it really was, you know, with the Army Corps, with these pipeline projects, they go under these nationwide permits, and there's probably some simple fixes in there for tribal opportunities for tribal consultation if we really focus on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something I had spoken with the folks from NCI and NARF about, and we had some ideas, and then the election happened, and it, that was that. You know, there, it just was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Not in this administration anyway. So right. hopefully, you know, we can get a better administration in the future on tribal issues because this one's, you know, really terrible. Mm-hmm. And we can have a platform for this. And it really is these nationwide permits. It's these big federal infrastructure projects that have fall under these nationwide permits that just allow them to go through with very with with no local consultation and we need to get local consultation included mm-hmm. in it. So that would be the main area where you would like to see changes? 
Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the consultation and also the ability to, well, there's a few things. There's consultation, the ability to stop the project when there are multiple burials found, just like we kind of have here in California. Right. And also the ability to repatriate whatever is found. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of the worst parts of Section 106 is that everything goes into curation, mm-hmm. into federal curation, and I, and I, I think it's time to stop that. Okay, so if there's not a NAGPRA aspect, basically still implementing similar procedures to NAGPRA? Yeah. Is what you'd like to see? Yeah, so that NAGPRA, Mm -hmm. what happens now is everything goes to this federal curation. Everything has to go to a museum and then it's studied and then the tribes have to petition through NAGPRA to repatriate it and it doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense that we have that system. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. So even straight to the tribes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Out here, I'd like to see that in in the California NAGPRA. I mm-hmm. call it the first right of refusal, mm-hmm. where the tribe could have the first right to repatriate mm-hmm. it back before it goes to curation. Wow. Okay, so basically, yeah, basically you need to make that happen in California so we have a (laughs) test run for the rest of the country. Right, because once you have Section 106, that's not possible. There's litigation Mm -hmm. going on in California about that because of the federal highway projects and the tribes opposed. There's been a burial ground up in in the Willits Bypass Mm -hmm. up in Northern California where a major burial ground and cultural site was affected by a, a, a highway. And the tribal folks, they don't want the material and the remains to go to curation. But mm-hmm. under Section 106, there's not really a way around that. But hmm. we can do that locally. If it's a local right. project, I've been involved in a project where it was a state highway and they found some very significant cultural items that were not burial items. They were just cultural right. items. I don't want to get into the specifics of it, but mm-hmm. in that situation, because there was no federal highway oversight or funding, we were able to negotiate an agreement with the county and re- have everything repatri- repatriated directly to the tribe. Huh. And so then they could determine what they wanted to do with it, if they were going to rebury it or if they were going to keep it for the tribe. Wow. And to me, that's that's what should happen. Yeah. Interesting. You know, it's, we it's funny. Curation. <laughs> <laughs> we do. And people can't keep up with it. It's funny because I feel like everyone is always talking about amending NHPA or NEPA. And, but nobody ever, everyone, everyone always says, you know, we need to make these changes, but nobody ever actually has any concrete ideas of, of what those changes would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting talking to you and and getting some more on the ground what it would look like ideas for, yeah. for changing these major laws. Yeah. Yeah, I'm full of ideas. You just <laughs> just getting it done. You know, right. and sometimes it can, it can be done like we were talking earlier if there's an issue that needs to be fixed like the Public Records Act here in California wasn't solid mm-hmm. enough. So we we went in and and amended it to be more specific. And actually, I've come up against a problem with our existing statute already. 
Hmm. Where a local government saying that there's certain information they can and they're obligated to release, such as who is at the consultations, the names of the people that are there. Oh, I okay. don't think that's appropriate that they say that they can say yeah. how many meetings they've had with us and who was there. I right, don't think that's right. relevant to the the environmental reports, and I don't think it's relevant. It's not something that I envisioned would be public information under mm-hmm. our existing structure. Um, and so that's a legal issue about the Public Records Act. Right. And that, it, is, it is kind of, it's not easy to amend the California Public Records Act because for the most part, people want sunshine. They want <laughs> to have access to everything. Right, and right. Like the Newspaper Association, they opposed the last bill that we proposed and got through for mm-hmm. the consultation documents. And what we argued was this is sensitive tribal information that basically nobody needs to know. Right, Even right. Even within a tribe, even within mm-hmm. my tribe, not everybody needs to know where the sites are. And the right, explanation right. for that is, well, some sites are for women, mm-hmm. some sites were mm-hmm. for men. You know, the women wouldn't need to know what the men were doing. The men wouldn't need to know where the women's sites were. They wouldn't have access to that information in a tribal right. cultural setting. Um, right. And we wouldn't want to know, you know, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be something we'd be privy to or be demanding. Right. And so we tried to explain that to the, the newspaper uh, association folks. And eventually they kind of got it, uh, but... You know, those people are probably gone now, so it'll be a whole new right. group of people right. that we have to educate. Right. Or, you know, I mean, <laughs> maybe you have to be initiated or trained in order to be able to receive that kind of information. Absolutely. Or some tribes yeah. have clans or, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why different parts of the same community might not have access to certain information. But, yeah, but, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's a need-to-know basis. Right, right. So after you fix that, do you want to go on and, and fix FOIA for us too? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, with FOIA, I don't know what – I haven't even looked at that mm-hmm. about what is – it seems like federal agencies don't release things. Let me look yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if that's if that's an issue, mm-hmm. but I do think that the process with the ACHP is not as solid as it should be. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there, I've been in consultations with the, involving the, the ACHP too at a really high level. And there's even if the advisory council and their staff agree with you that there's a site there there's very little they can do to protect it, even if it's on the national registry, even if it's right. in the documentation, it's all about mitigation. Then mm-hmm. that's not really good enough. Right. Right. Today. You know, mitigation that's what that's what we're trying to get away from is mitigation because mitigation is it's usually money or something for someplace else. Is that doesn't mm-hmm. actually preserve the site right. itself. Right. And right. that's our goal is to preserve the site itself as intact as possible and to avoid it. You know, that's our number one goal is avoidance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I understand that sometimes at the end, 
I've been involved with a process where the tribe didn't get involved when they they did know about a project, mm-hmm. and they all of the the process under CEQA and NEPA lapsed, and they didn't get involved, and then they got involved right at the very end after it was approved. Mm-hmm. And in that case, you have to go all in for mitigation. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. to get as much possible mitigation in terms of monitoring and you know funding for cultural programs or whatever it is that you can get out of this project. And that sounds kind of gross, but it, yeah. that's all you have at the very end. And you want right. to be upfront at the beginning so that you can actually get real meaningful protection right. measures. Right. So. Although, like you said, I mean, if you're buried under a stack of papers, that can be really hard to do. It can be. It can mm-hmm. be really hard. The burden is on the tribes in California, and I know a lot of them don't right. like it. Right. But it's one of those you get what you ask for things. Be careful. Right. And now they have to have cultural programs, and now that does require that they have funding for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hopefully the TIPOs, if there's any that are listening to this podcast, they would be able to try to bring that information back and and hopefully they're sharing information I was talking to you earlier I don't really have access to all the tipos I don't get invited to their conferences or anything like that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of us that are doing work that affect their jobs and we want to make their jobs easier and there should be you know we do need to be more effective with communicating with one another I think with social media that's why I was happy to do the podcast because Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think social media is the one one tool that we have to try to get everybody talking. And email is great, and having conferences and things are are great. But if you don't know about the conference, you're not going to be there. I don't. I usually find out about things afterwards, <laughs> so I don't get around to a lot of those things. But I know there's a lot of work being done, and and everyone needs to communicate a little bit more mm-hmm. effectively. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's. Lots more things that I could ask you about, but I'm going to try and just limit it right now since we're, I think, already over. Okay. <laughs> um, but based on what you were just talking about, I'm I'm really curious, if I understood correctly in your bio, it mentioned that you were a tribal council member for a while. Uh-huh. So I'm curious how that experience of being a tribal council member affected the way you saw this type of, of federal Indian law and, and cultural resource law that you're working on? Well, I think that that showed me how difficult it is for tribal governments to participate in the process because, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, we have so many constraints on our time. Tribal leaders are, everybody's trying to talk to them. They all have different requests and there's lots of demands on their time. And depending on the tribe, they may not have they may not be paid. I know I wasn't mm-hmm. paid. It was a lot of travel and a lot of time in meetings. And it's very hard to get really anything done when you're just talking in tribal council all day long and mm-hmm. the agenda is sort of broken up and you don't have paid tribal leaders. And I have noticed that in where tribes have more resources because of gaming in particular, they get they get more accomplished because they are full-time. They don't have to work outside of being on the council. That's their job. And if they don't represent their people well, they lose their job. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. In my tribe, 
because they're not paid per se, at least I'm not sure if they are now. So it's a real burden to be on the council. So I don't know. You'd have to be retired or a student and or Mm -hmm. yeah, I I never know how people do it. It's it's a lot of responsibility. So I think that I and if you look at the unrecognized tribes, that's what why I always have sort of a soft spot for the unrecognized because they do have to work. They are not paid usually by their tribe because they just don't have the revenue to do that. And so we do have to give them as much accommodation as possible within the Mm -hmm. law because it is hard to do. And they're going to get all these notices. They'll have to be interacting with the state, with the Native American Heritage Commission, with the governor's office, you know, with their local county and city, with their membership. There's just so many pulls on their time. The TIPO is really key, obviously, because they they are paid, I would assume, usually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's grant funds, what there used to be. I think that's probably going to go away for a little while in this administration, which is very unfortunate. It's really bad timing. We need that federal funding for these programs. But TIPOs are really, they're the lifeline. That's the connection between the tribes and the different jurisdictions. One of the downsides and weaknesses, though, I see with TIPOs in California is we have really small land bases most of the time. Right. So a TIPO only has generally, you know, the jurisdiction over the reservation or the rancheria. Right. And that's very small, and you might not even have a cultural site there because it might not be, you know, an area where you traditionally lived. You got moved there. Right, so, right. All of the sites are off reservation. And one of the processes that I would suggest to any TIPO in California, if there is a mechanism where you can enter into an agreement directly with the state to have access to for all of the site records in your Aboriginal area from the state. And Hmm. so some tribes have that access now, and they've negotiated it through an MOU with the it's the California Historic Resources Inventory System, the CRIS mm-hmm. system, and you can negotiate an MOU with the CRIS if you're if you have a TIPO to gain access to the, all of the site records in your Aboriginal area as you negotiate that area with the state. I think that's hmm. really important too because then you'll have those site records, and when you get the notice of a project, you can compare it with what your maps are. What, I'm assuming every tribe at some point has to develop a map of where their sites are, some kind of GIS database, ideally. Sometimes mm-hmm. a very sophisticated GIS program that mm-hmm. is just working off of paper. Mm-hmm. But having some way to say, okay, here's the map of this project. Here's our site records map and compare the two so that they know that if something's there. So. Right. Yeah, the council member experience was one that just taught me how hard it is to get things done internally within the tribe. I didn't want to run again. That's frustrating. Yeah. I felt like I could do more outside of it than in. Right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another, you're, you're talking about tribes having GIS ideally. And, and one thing I just want to throw in here real quick too is, is that if there's tribes that don't have resources, Google Earth actually has, so it's called Google Earth Outreach, and they have done cultural mapping projects with tribes across the world. And there's ways that you can, 
not connect the information to their network basically so you can uh -huh. keep it just within the tribe and it's it's much more cost effective and really accessible for tribes if they don't have the resources to to implement a full gis map um so that's just a, an idea that i wanted to throw out there and yeah, then it sounds like great. that's really mm -hmm. helpful yeah yeah we're potentially we're, we're going in on a, a proposal with them for a project i've been learning a lot about using Google Earth as a as an alternative option to GIS and actually maybe in the show notes there's a, a website I think out of the University of Victoria I want to say where they have a an indigenous mapping resources website hmm. um, so I'll, I'll include that for for people that are interested in learning more yeah you know the mapping process is really important I, I'm a complete nerd when it comes to maps because maps, especially pre-contact maps or, you know, early, here we have early, early watershed maps from before the gold rush destroyed everything and changed the water courses uh, mm -hmm. with their hydraulic mining. The original stream locations are absolutely important to seeing where villages might be located because, of course, Native people were really smart and they found they lived in places that were really nice to live in, which mm -hmm. usually coincides today with where people live today because people live today where there's water, where there's food, where there's access to other trade. And so if you, if you develop these maps, and I could probably go on for another hour about this, but uh, <laughs> maps but looking at where state roads are, are it's usually where the former trails were, the trade mm -hmm. routes between mm -hmm. tribal groups is now right. county roads because it makes sense that Native people had these paths when settlers came here. They used them, they widened them, they became state highways, they became the county roads. And so whenever there's construction on those roads, they're going to hit cultural sites because that's where the villages right. are. They were right. the routes between villages. And also the ancient stream locations will tell you, uh, give you a lot of information about where villages were located because we traditionally were located near water because that just makes sense. We would need water for everything we do and our basket material. Yeah, so GIS and mapping Google Earth sounds great, but it really is important to have a good sense of what your tribe, how culturally, how you planned. You know, I think tribal groups had a system of where people lived and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can apply that that knowledge and look at a map and be able to kind of have a good guess of where cultural places will be and that's right. that's really a topic that you bring into the consultation is right. okay we have this information we know that there's a site x y and z nearby you don't have to tell them where but that because of the way villages were structured, it's a high likelihood there's going to be something here in this one location. Right. right. And that's right. a scientific, that scientific information and it's environmental information that is helpful to a consultation. And so, yeah, the burden is on the tribes to develop the information and some are really taking it to the next level and they're, they have really comprehensive programs. They can show you aerial views. They have drone videos. They have GIS layering. Others wow. are working off a of paper map. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the idea is just to have some kind of a way to help you do your job. 
you know, right. it's a tough job right. to get all these notices and have to respond to them. That's a lot of pressure. Right, right. Definitely a lot easier if you already have a sense of, of where sites would be and the layout of of your traditional landscape. Absolutely. I mean, you can't you can't mm-hmm. consult on every project. Right, right. It's not reasonable. So, and that was one of the arguments in favor of consultation with the developers who all opposed it. Is we kind of had to commit and say, look, tribal governments have a lot going on. They're not going to be requesting consultation for every project. They can't. Mm-hmm. They're going mm-hmm. to have to. The burden is going to shift to the tribes to determine which are priorities. And so, if they are notifying you that they need consultation, there's a reason. And it needs to be right. taken really seriously. Right, right. The other ones, they're just going to send you the letter back that says, thank you for your notice. We've looked at it. We don't have any concerns right now. But if you find anything, and if there are any inadvertent discoveries, this is who you contact. Right, right. And then they have that as a record, and hopefully they contact somebody if something is found. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a lot to think about, but mapping is really, really (laughs) important. I don't think that you can have a cultural resource program without some kind of comprehensive strategy for your mapping. Right. Right. Okay. So we, now I I know for sure we're over time. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we are just going to have to have you on again at some point. (laughs) <laughs> well, you can come up with some more questions. That's good. I, I have plenty more. <laughs> Don't you worry. Okay, but in the meantime, if if people want to learn more about everything that you talked about, or I'm I'm not sure whether or not you would be open to people contacting you directly. So where would you direct people, either resources or yourself, if they have additional questions after listening to this? Yeah, you know, I think my email is probably a good place if they actually have a, a question. Mm-hmm. And my my email is just michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, at lapinalaw.com. And you'll have that on your website. It's just L-A-P-E-N-A-L-A-W.com. And, you know, I don't expect a lot of people to be contacting me, but if anybody has a specific <laughs> question, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to respond. I feel like I've I've been put here in this role for some purpose, and if I can be helpful and pass it on, you know, it's there comes a point in everyone's career, and I think I've I've been at it for a little while. I mean, I'm not that old, and uh, I haven't been doing it that long. But and I and I know I have more time left, but I want more people to have all of the information. So the more of us there are out there, the better, the more effective we'll be. So I'm always happy to to answer questions and to guide people in the right direction so that they can they can be more effective in their work and have a better understanding. Education is really important to me. And that's probably why in my bio it always starts off with that I'm a mother of three because I have three children who are tribal members. And all of this, I mean, it's about the past. It's about our, you know, our ancestors and our where we came from. But it's about our future, too, and mm-hmm. what's going to be left for them. And that's really what drives me on any given day is, am I doing something that's going to make it better for that next generation? Or are they going to look back and say, why why did you guys drop the ball? You know, (laughs) so hopefully we're doing something to keep that ball rolling. 
Well, you are definitely doing something to keep that ball rolling. <laughs> and I look forward to, to seeing what else you do. And we'll have also a PowerPoint on the California tribal consultation law that you mentioned on in the show notes. And thank you so much for being on and, and sharing so much knowledge with us today. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Heritage Voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. Or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going Going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.